Well, if you knew what plan A was for today, it was for Lou to preach. Uh, but the COVID caught up with Lou this week. And um, we're not on plan A. Uh, it's probably not plan B. I won't suggest what plan we're to that I'm preaching this morning. Um, but one of the one of the benefits of being a last-minute fill-in is you get to preach whatever you want, and they're content. The team's glad you're here. And so I'm not moving forward in the series about the story of stories, but maybe you could view this this morning as a kind of a bonus track, because it does fit in with that uh, arc of the story of stories. Um, we're going to spend most of our time kind of centered on that Genesis 2 passage that you've heard, but we're going to actually pull in a lot of other scripture, and, um, and then hopefully in the, in the coming weeks, uh, that story will be moved further. Pray for Lou. Uh, he's doing all, all right as far as uh, my last update. Some years ago, I was uh, leading some hikes up in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, uh, with a group of young people, we were hiking at uh, Pictured Rocks. We were hiking uh, the North Country Trail. We were hiking in the High Wealth of the National Forest. And um, uh, in that group, there's one memorable student, a young, young man, probably about 14, who has just kind of added extra entertainment value uh, whenever he was part of activities. And it was always fun to walk with students during the hikes and in interact and um, we were on the Grand Island Baden Ock Trail, and um, he was uh, hiking near me. We, we came to a place where there was simply a small caterpillar, and uh, he stopped and addressed it. And this is what he said to the caterpillar. You have no reason to exist. And he said it kind of with some force and a little bit of animosity. And I was very struck by that. Now, I don't know if he had had kind of some uh, early childhood trauma with caterpillars. Um, like maybe I don't want to be remembered for everything I might have said at 14, but um, it did actually provide an opportunity to, with that group later, talk about some really neat things. And uh, we talked about what does it mean to be a human in God's creation, and what is a human's relationship with and responsibility towards the rest of God's creation. I'd actually like to visit those questions with you this morning and add a third. How is the gospel good news for God's creation? Again, uh, Genesis 2 will be our primary text. I'm kind of making some assumptions because several weeks ago, Pastor Matt worked through Genesis 1, and uh, I'll try not to cover all that material. Again, I'll make some references to it. Um, I'm also going to just quote a lot of scriptures this morning, and uh, it might be more than you want to flip to. You're welcome to, to flip. But uh, if you're making notes, it might be easier just to note the reference and give you an opportunity to revisit that because there's going to be a lot of text. Um, I also think it's important to frame up our approach because there's a couple of missteps that could be made and I want to avoid right here at the beginning. The questions we work through 
uh, that I've listed and that we're gonna work through, all speak of God's creation and the assumption there is that God is the preeminent one and the center and primary place in his creation. That's the foundational starting point for addressing those questions. But the common missteps are ones that place something else at the center of, God's, of, of the creation. One, mistake, uh, one misstep made by modern materialists and ancient non-Christian spiritualists is to place nature at the center or the preeminent place. And there are pockets in the larger environmental movement that begin with this assumption. When you begin here, nature is the preeminent thing, then humans are merely one co-equal citizen in the biosphere. Thus, they are at best a peer, or at worst, a guest, or worst yet, an invader. And when the Council of Nature convenes, humans are the most challenging species to motivate, or to respect, or to involve. If you want to be made to feel guilty for simply being alive, this is a good group to hang out with. <laughs> and incidentally, these are also people who are happy to speak in terms of uh, referencing Mother Nature, uh, which is often just another cultural way of speaking, but it's, it's not a biblical framework. Nature is not mother. If you're formed in your understanding of what it means to be human in God's creation. Well, the other misstep, which really comes out of the Enlightenment, is to place humans at the place of preeminence in all of the creation. They become the center and measure of all things. In this scenario, all non-human entities in the environment around us become merely things, merely resources to be managed or exploited for the sake of human needs, wants, or desires. Humans are entitled, and humans are free to become tyrants. If I had to guess, I think some of this kind of thinking might have been behind that 14-year-old's evaluation of the caterpillar, because he couldn't imagine that little thing in the midst of this deep forest could have any meaning or value for humans. And without that value, why should it exist? It simply, in his framework, had no value. Is this kind of outlook that affected the places where we live now 150 years ago when they came through and logged all the forests as if it was an inexhaustible resources and left the landscape without thought for planning and regeneration and restoration? It's the kind of thinking that still affects our local area presently with the, the invasive species affecting systems all in the land in our lakes and it's ever-present in the larger ecological crisis uh, that we face. In the, in the Old Testament, I think even Job was susceptible to this a little bit. When you read chapters 38 through 40, where God's addressing Job, and uh, God is trying to reframe his understanding, and God starts to list all these creatures in the wild places and in the oceans. And uh, he says to Job, I 
tend to these creatures that you know nothing about. Creatures that would kill you if you got too near to them. Job, you are viewing everything from what makes sense to you, but what matters to you and your interests aren't the only measure of things. There are things in this world uh, that no human will ever observe, but God is present to them and delights in them. Can you think that thought? The Bible is very clear that God is the central and preeminent one in all of creation. Psalm 24, 1 and 2, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the, wor- on the rivers. Deuteronomy 10, 14, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Colossians chapter 1, speaking of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I think sometimes we hear that part, all things were created through him, and we don't quite register that next part, all things were created for him. In the person of Christ, God is the preeminent one in all of creation. So we must begin with the affirmation that this is God's world and all of creation comes to us as a gift created by him for his glory and purposes. Think of, hear these words, how the psalmist in Psalm 148 speaks about that um, gift-giving, glory-receiving God. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and mist, storming wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. The the creation is called to praise God. Humans are called to praise God. But creation isn't in the preeminent place. And humans aren't in the preeminent place. God is in the preeminent place. He receives glory from all that he has made. So let me assume that you're with me this far, that the Bible teaches that God is the preeminent one, central over all his creation, Let me just give you a test then. Let me give some pictures of creation or statements that kind of flow from some of these views and uh, see which viewpoint might most naturally resonate with your instinctive understanding. Here's one. The natural world is the chance random arrangements of atoms and molecules devoid of inherent meaning. Or here's one, and this one has a soundtrack if you want to sing it. 
Uh, you can think you own whatever land you land on. The earth is just a dead thing you can claim. But I know every rock and tree and creature has a life, has a spirit, has a name. Or here's one. Uh, the natural world is like a natural general store, a bunch of stuff, raw materials waiting to be arranged for human need and consumption. Or here's one. The created world around us is the loving gift of an artist, reflecting and pointing to the beauty and generosity of the giver. hope your instinct flows a little bit out of that last one more than the others. You know, it's interesting, aside here, the Bible doesn't have a word for nature. For us, we talk about nature, and usually we mean nature uh, kind of as those wild places and uh, over against kind of developed places, the built world. Um, in the Bible, there is only the world, and in it, uh, it is all from God and for God, and everything is the work of God's hands. Yes, it can be frustrated, it can be distorted and misused, but nothing is outside of God's realm. There isn't this separate sphere called nature. It's, that kind of flows from the concept of the secular, I think, to think of that there are realms that are kind of devoid of God and of uninterest to God. Uh, but what a strange concept to think that God would not have interest in his creation, uh, that he would not attend to it and sustain it. How can we imagine a God like that, for it's not the picture in the Bible? All right, so to the questions, let's um, look at these three questions. The first one, what does it mean to be human in God's creation? probably would spend actually more time in Genesis 1 with this. Uh, that was uh, unpacked for us a little bit earlier uh, this summer. But I think the best place to start is with Genesis 1, 26 and 27. I remind you of those verses. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Most profound thing that could be said about humans in all the work of creation is that they are God's image. They, they don't merely possess or bear God's image, they are God's image. They are God's image in the world. There's so many things that could be unpacked and, 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 and discussed about this, but uh, one aspect certainly is this, that they are God's representative. They represent and are charged with responsibilities to um, mediate and extend God's rule in this world. I think one of the frameworks to think of this text is, is the kingly calling of humans. Humans have a kingly role to rule in biblical terms. Of course, the favored image of a good and faithful king in the Bible is that of a shepherd 
that is no uh, self-interested tyrant. Psalm 145 uh, is one, uh, uh, one particular pic- picture of what a good king, um, how they serve, how they rule, what the effects of their um, faithful conduct of, of, of reign is. Uh, it's a psalm addressed to my God, the king, and it enumerates um, important qualities um, and uh, as the psalmist there extols God and King and calls on the generation to commend his works, um, listen to the works that are characterized by good and faithful kingship. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all he has made. The Lord is faithful in all his words, and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are failing and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. The characteristics of biblical kingship and what it means to exercise that as image of God in the world needs to be characterized by being good, righteous, merciful, loving, faithful, generous, kind, protecting, and providing justice. Well, if Genesis 1 emphasizes humans' kingly or royal role, then I think the best lens for Genesis 2 is noting how it emphasizes humans' priestly role. These themes of king, priest, uh, as uh, expressions of humans calling in the world are throughout Scripture. And um, if Genesis 1 emphasizes kind of the spotlight on king, then Genesis 2, I would suggest, puts the spotlight on a priestly role. In Genesis 1, man is the final and climactic act of creation. But Genesis 2 points to the earthly identity and belonging of the creature, the human, with the creation. He is formed from the dirt. There's kind of a word play in the Hebrew. The man is called Adam, and he is created from the, the soil, the earth, the Adama. The Adam is made from the Adama. This is no heavenly creature, angel, kind of brought in to manage the place. This is a creature who is made specifically and intentionally out of the stuff of creation that he might remember his identity and place in creation. 
You may remember from Genesis chapter 1 that humans are made on day 6. They don't get their own separate day. They're created the same day as goats and elk and lizards. By forming the Adam from the stuff of creation, I think there's a clear emphasis that humans are meant to view themselves as belonging to and in this creation. Priests, in their priestly role, identify with those with whom and for whom they intercede and for whom they mediate. Humans' relationship to the rest of creation is as a member of creation. God's image, distinct and yet formed from the dirt and dependent on the gifts of creation to sustain life. As an aside, um, one of the words that's often used to talk about humans' responsibility towards creation is the word stewardship, environmental stewardship sometimes. And that's both, I think, a helpful and an unhelpful term. In the best and helpful sense, it talks about, uh, it reminds us that the, the responsibilities and the authority of ruling uh, and, and, and exercising dominion is a delegated authority from God and responsible to him, responsible to um, reflect his purposes, values, and intentions. I think in that way, stewardship is a, is a very helpful term. Where, where I don't think it's helpful enough is um, stewardship is often, we associate it with the stewardship of things, stuff. Uh, stewarding finances or possessions. And there's a real distinction between the steward and the things that the steward manages. But there's so much in Genesis 2 to reinforce that I, I believe God wants us to view ourselves not so distinct from creation as to think we're over against and other than creation. Humans are made out of the things of creation and reflect so much in creation. We're not the only mammals. Like everywhere we turn, we are reminded that we are like and belong to this creation. And as priests identify with it, I think it's been suggested that words like kinship um, might speak to a to, to, to reinforce our close relationship with the non-human creation. It's not just stuff. We're, as humans, not outsiders sent in to manage. We are insiders with a calling towards and a responsibility towards this creation. A responsibility, um, I think, is unpacked in the key verse here of chapter 2, the, the verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Two profound and important words about his responsibility. It is to, to work and to keep. 
or might I suggest, to, to serve and to protect. Uh, the two words, uh, to work is abad and to keep or protect is shamar. The core meaning of the word abad is to serve. Uh, to serve is done through work or effort, but it's, it, its core sense is, is, is to serve it. It's a common word used often in the Old Testament. It's the word used in the repeated um, refrain of God's message to Pharaoh through Moses where he says, let my people go that they may serve me. It is used in the Ten Commandments in the command not to make carved images or idols. The text says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. In contrast, the calling is like Psalm 100, verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. This is what it means to abad. This is the call and responsibility of humans as God's image towards the rest of creation is one of serving. Of course, that theme of, of uh, inverting the world's System where uh, those with authority get everybody to serve them. We're told that that's not how it works in God's kingdom. Those who lead are called to serve. Those who are given power and authority are to use that for the best interest of those they are called to serve. This was Adam's first responsibility to serve. The other word is shamar, to keep. If serving is not just working on it or forcing it, but serving it, knowing it, and, uh, and uh, seeking its flourishing, then this word kind of means to keep watch or to preserve or to protect. It doesn't mean possess. It means uh, uh, to look after like we use the word to keep um, uh, in different contexts, like to keep bees. A beekeeper is one who provides and protects and arranges for the flourishing of bees. He's not possessing them strictly to gain what he can at their cost, but he seeks or she seeks their protection and care so that they can flourish in all their beeness. And guess what? When they flourish in their beeness, the beekeeper benefits too. This word of keeping is not an uncommon word either in the Old Testament. Perhaps the most well-known priestly use of the word is from the uh, blessing that God gives to the Levites to pronounce over God's people. It's in Numbers uh, chapter six, verses 22 through 26. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say, that, say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. To be kept by the Lord is to be protected for your flourishing. So these, these, these 
characteristics of the human's responsibility toward the created world reflected the kind of God who placed him there as image. Serve, protect. It's not just out of sympathy that we're called as humans to do this. Because God did make us dependent on the earth and other non-human parts of creation for our very existence. Think of food. Humans are to care for the creation and in turn the creation provides for humans. And there are many texts in scripture that point out to this interdependence as God's intentional plan. You hear these words from Psalm 104, but you really could reference the entire psalm. Here's just verses 14 and 15. Speaking to God, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. This interplay, this interdependence is God's plan for creation. To be human is not to be somehow delivered from that dependence. It's to flourish within that dependence. And these commands, these responsibilities for humans to rule and serve and keep the creation has never been repealed. So how do we cultivate this outlook and understanding in our own lives, in our lives of our children, and, and, and um, encounter some of the other narratives that don't begin with God as central and preeminent in creation? What steps can you take? I don't know where you are in the journey, but let me just, let me just suggest something. Um, how well do you know the plants and the animals that live in your yard? Can you name the species of trees or the birds that alight and come through? Do you know their names? Maybe make an effort to learn those. There's wonderful guides to ID things, plants, little apps you can have on your phone that'll listen to the birds and tell you what the species is. Like you can know these things. It's hard to love something you don't know. But if you know God in your heart is formed to love the things he loves, and he loves the vast diversity of the, the, the creatures he's made. He wasn't content to make one tree, one bird, like the multitude of species he delights in. And to know their names, to know their place, is to know them and to begin to love them. To grow as a worshiper of God is to be formed to love the things he loves. Well, this third question, how is the gospel good news for God's creation? Before I get to there, just incidentally, if you haven't stopped around the backside of the building and seen the native plant gardens, 
that uh, Julie and Emily and others have put in this year. It's a really neat thing. What used to be kind of barren stone and asphalt is now adorned with all of these native Michigan flowers and plants that belong here and attract butterflies. And as the the kids from the YMCA coming in and out of those doors each day, they interact with that beautiful expression of what God meant to flourish here. And uh, the wonderful work that those, the team has done with those things. Um, go enjoy it sometime. Or volunteer to water it on a Saturday or something. All right, this, this last question. How is the gospel good news for God's creation? You remember the refrain that was repeated again and again through the verses of Genesis 1. God says over his creation, it is good. It is good. These things he's created are good in themselves. Uh, They're good in their relationship to each other. But when Adam and Eve rebel in chapter 3 of Genesis, it's recorded that death and separation and curse comes not only on the humans, Adam and Eve, but indeed all of creation suffers. Here the pronouncement of curse in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Creation suffers. It is frustrated. It is cursed away from its original beautiful plan. Now, you might want to know, why does God put a penalty on creation for a human rebellion? And um, we can't spend a lot of time exploring that. Um, Let me just suggest part of it is actually a, a, a limiting factor of God's gracious reminder to us that if we think we can live independently, Guess what? If creation isn't working cooperatively to sustain us, it's going to take all our effort just to keep alive. It reminds us of our dependence and limitation. God is giving us kind of the consequence of our desire to be independent. It's a grace not to be left in a perfect world while pursuing without inhibition sinful ends. There's more, certainly more that can be developed. That's not our kind of first assignment this morning, but note the creation suffers and is cursed because of human rebellion. Because humans are intertwined with creation. They belong to it. And they have a priestly, kingly role assigned to them. When they have abdicated those responsibilities, the creation suffers. Remember those verses we read earlier from Colossians 1 about how the creation was made by and for Christ? Well, guess what? The text also tells us that Christ in his redemptive work redeems not only humans, 
but all of God's creation. I'm going to pick up, continue from where we had read earlier, Colossians 1, here 16 through 20. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God's plan of salvation, the good news of the gospel is this is no scaled back plan of redemption. This is not God saying, well, man has messed it up. Let's go rescue him out of it and throw it all away. Guess what? Everything God created in all its goodness and intention, he does not abandon. He redeems through Christ. with a longing for that coming day when in a new heaven and new earth, humans can fulfill in every way the joyous, God-glorifying role we were meant to fill. And guess what? It's in a redeemed heaven and earth. The Apostle Paul talks about how creation itself presently groans and longs with anticipation for that coming day when Christ returns to set all things right. Hear these verses from Romans chapter 8, verses um, 19 through 23. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Christ does not abandon any of it, but reconciles it all to himself. His resurrection points to this reality. Christ was raised, his body raised from the dead, pointing to the resurrection of those who die in Christ, not abandoned souls to to live some non-material existence. It's the hope of the resurrection in a renewed body, in a new heaven and earth where God has made all things new. Uh, The text doesn't say, I make all new things. It says, I make all things new. God does not abandon his work. He redeems and restores it. And the good news of the gospel is that it goes and encompasses all of creation. The psalmist described the rejoicing of creation at the Lord's return. There's several passages. Here's one in Psalm 96. Um, Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. 
Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. The groaning in creation is in the longing and anticipation of a great day of celebration when Christ returns and the application of his saving work sets free all of creation from curse, bondage, and decay, and it breaks out in celebration. You see it in the vision for the new heavens and earth in Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Is the gospel good news for creation? Indeed, it is the best news. The gospel, God's act to redeem and restore all that is alienated from him because of human sin. As we go to the table this morning, we go to remember Christ's saving work for us. Jesus reconciles us to God, providing for us the salvation we could never gain or accomplish on our own. He lives sinlessly, obedient in every way, even performed miracles that pointed to the restoration, healings, things like that, the restoration and the setting right of all things. And then, willingly, He died in our place. He laid down his life, going to the cross to live or to die the death he did not deserve so that we might have the life we could never earn. He satisfied God's justice. He reconciles us and restores us to God. As we remember these things, we come And remember them simply with the sustaining elements from God's good creation. Bread from grain, the cup from grapes, real, tangible, good elements that point to a greater feast that will be shared on that future day in the presence of Christ and in the company of all his saints when he returns when he has transformed us with new sanctified bodies in that new heaven and earth creation, the curse repealed, all flourishing under God's plan. Let us pray. God, this morning, we are reminded of your greatness. We're reminded of good and perfect intentions you have intended from the beginning and you never gave up on. 
you didn't start over patiently, little by little. The unfolding story of stories is that in Christ you have come to set these things right. The victory has already been accomplished in Christ's death and resurrection, and with longing we have that glorious hope of that day when Christ returns, sets all things right, and the curse is repealed. Grant that we would live today as citizens of that future reality, uh, communities that are outposts of of extending your kingly and priestly, kingly rule and priestly presence as we serve and protect your creation for its flourishing, for our good. We pray this this morning in the name of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.